The F-35s tool up to go to war. Lord Ashdown warns against further map meddling in the Balkans. The French say don't trust the Americans on defence. Europe can no longer rely solely on the United States for its security. Why a no-deal Brexit could mean big changes at RAF Akrotiri. And remembering Germany's most British past. Hello there, I'm Tim Cooper. Welcome to SITREP. The F-35 Lightning Jet is a step closer to operations on the front line. The Ministry of Defence says the supersonic stealth fighter has completed its first trials armed with British missiles. The jet was flown by a British pilot from 617 Squadron from Edwards Air Force Base in Southern California and carried ASRAM air-to-air missiles. That's advanced short-range air-to-air missiles. I'm joined by the aviation analyst Paul Beaver, who's the author of a new book called The Royal Air Force, as well as our BFBS Defence analyst Christopher Lee in the studio. Paul, hello to you first of all. Hello Tim. How important is this latest step, a British missile on a British F-35 with a British pilot? Well, this is another step forward, and this is really important because the F-35 hasn't had the best of presses. Um, It's had its own problems um, in the whole development in the United States, not just with the way that uh, the British have been handling it. So this is an indication that the aircraft uh, is being integrated to use British missiles. It won't have the complete uh, panoply of missiles. So, for example, the Storm Shadow standoff um, uh, position attack weapon will be flown by the Typhoon. So we still need both F-35, which has been called the Lightning in British service, um, and the Typhoon as well. Uh, we're going to have two um, state-of-the-art aircraft, a sort of 4.5 generation in the Typhoon and a fifth generation in the F-35. Let's talk a little bit about the schedule of all of this, because as you mentioned there, Paul, there have been issues with that, and we're gradually seeing milestones come through Marham, this missile soon, HMS Queen Elizabeth. But is it really on schedule? There's been a lot of talk in some elements of the press, particularly emanating from Russia, about the fact that it just isn't ready at all and isn't even safe. Well, I, I think the safety issue is uh, is something that we can discard. I mean, there's no aircraft that's going to be flying if it's unsafe in British service. Um, but in terms of its readiness, well, I, I suppose really that if you look at this and you go back 10 years, um, we had expected it to be in service now, but we then also expected the aircraft carrier to be in service now. These things, large complex projects, take time. So the new plan is that the aircraft will have its initial operating capability along with the, the carrier HMS Queen Elizabeth in the 2021-22 time frame. Um, and that gives them time to work the aircraft up. They're going to have uh, uh, trials. The, the carrier's on its way to uh, the east coast of the United States now for uh, uh, what's called Westland 18, a big exercise where uh, the British aircraft, which are based in, in the Carolinas, and American aircraft will be operating off the deck so that the deck is proved to be safe. It's already operating helicopters, Merlins from uh, uh, Coldrails and from Yeovilton, so that's the anti-submarine warfare, and the commando lift helicopters are operating um, off the ship. There's a lot going on, but it's a big and complex thing, and I think actually uh, the bigger and the more complex it is, um, we all know these things get delayed, and and that's exactly what's happened. Yes, it is. And Paul, you like myself, I'm sure, will have spent a lot of time this summer at the the trade shows, Farnborough in particular. What's the mood like there amongst this program, and also the aspiration for things like Tempest that Gavin Williamson announced? Mm-hmm. How is Britain and its aerospace industry and its military being viewed? 
Britain is, is in a really good place. We still do lots of wonderful things, uh, whether it's in space, you know, Mars rovers and satellites, um, all the way down to um, smart ammunition. So um, we're really very good across the whole of defense. What worries me is that we are have a tendency to go, oh, look, um, we can do this, um, but the Americans have got something that's not quite as good and twice as expensive. Let's buy that. Now, that isn't just me speaking. That was a series of Twitter posts um, uh, last weekend because we were looking at um, a, a group of us um, who were called uh, hashtag AvGeek were looking at the Zephyr program from Kinetic, which is really good, really will beating. Um, it's a, uh, an aircraft which relies on solar panels and uh, solar power uh, to give you high altitude and long range and long endurance as a UAV. The Americans have got something that's not quite as good and it's twice as expensive. And as somebody said, we're bound to buy that because it, it's American. Well, bearing in mind that you're going to be talking later about what the French are saying about uh, the Americans, you know, we've got to get our, our act together now. Um, I'm talking at the Royal Aeronautical Society in November at a conference about British um, aerospace industries and aviation as well. Just having to stand up doesn't matter about Brexit, doesn't matter about what President Trump is doing. We've got to stand up. We are brilliant at what we do. We have the engineers. We have the people. Let's get on with it. Yes. I mean, you say it doesn't matter about Brexit and in the, in the broader scheme of things it does. But Christopher, well, yeah, Lee, let's bring yeah. you in here on this one. Does Brexit give us an opportunity point, as it were, in time to really start shouting about our defence industry? No, it doesn't. No? No. Um, it doesn't give you an opportunity because the opportunity actually is there at the moment. And it doesn't matter whether you're in, inside Brexit or outside uh, in, 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 in Europe itself. What is going on at the moment in the whole defence industry is a rare assessment of partly what will happen in, uh, if we get a, you know, a, a, a poor deal on Brexit, etc. But that's a straightforward economic something that would happen anyway, mm. giving world situations, etc. What we've got to do and what is starting is that people are talking at all, different, all levels on what British uh, foreign policy is likely to look like in about 20 years' time. And what the military, and not just the, uh, uh, the Royal Air Force, but the military can be doing to guarantee British foreign policy in, say, 20 years' time. Um, and the first thing you have to accept that a lot of the, the hardware that you'll be using in 20 years' time is the hardware that you're actually developing now. Yeah. And it will be so in, say, 25, 30 years' time. And it's rethinking far more, not so much so positively, but trying to rethink realistically where are we going to be with it and remembering one thing, you don't always fight the first 11. Absolutely. Paul Beaver, thank you very much indeed for joining us today on the Pleasure, programme. Pleasure, Tim. Thanks, Paul. Take care. Still to come on the programme, the new exhibition about the British forces in Germany, which may need your help. We're looking for the experiences of, of many different people, of soldiers and officers, of family members, of children, of teachers, nurses, chaplains. Yes, yes, 
Now, defence ministers from across the European Union have continued talks in Vienna today. They've been talking and discussing a range of security issues, including proposals for a redrawing of the borders between Serbia and Kosovo. Lord Ashdown and two other former high representatives to Bosnia and Herzegovina feel very strongly that this should not happen. Lord Ashdown's been speaking to our editor, Gisela Waldron. The plan has been cooked up, I think, between... Prime Minister Thatcher of Kosovo and uh, President Vucic and Prime Minister Vucic of Serbia. Um, with the help, I'm sad to say, of um, the European High Representative for Foreign Affairs, uh, Mrs. Mogherini, and some support from Brussels, and now I think some tacit support from the Trump administration, Mr. Bolton, to swap um, the Serb majority populations north of the Ibar River uh, in Kosovo for. Uh, to Serbia and to hand over part of the Albanian majority populations in the area of Preševo over to Kosovo. Now, at a distance, if you don't know anything about the complications of the area, this would seem perfectly rational. Why shouldn't two sovereign states get together to agree to swap borders? The problem is, the moment you begin stopping changing borders in the Balkans, you never will never end. We all know where you'd like to redraw the first border, but where will you redraw the last? Are you going to break up Bosnia and Herzegovina if you've established that precedent? Are you going to hand over the Hungarian majority population in the north of Serbia and the Vojvodina to Hungary? Um, and are you going to, above all, and this is the most dangerous thing, um, hand over the Albanian majority population in Macedonia to Kosovo. They're already saying, if you do this, then we're next. And that undermines the integrity and the unity of the Macedonian state. It's going to have a very important referendum on on um, on Sunday, I think it is. Uh, it will undermine the unity of Bosnia. I don't think that can be done without conflict of one sort or another. It will create mono-ethnic and monocultural spaces, which is exactly what Europe says it will never do instead of keeping with borders and maintaining multi-ethnic states, and it will inevitably lead to the migration of populations. Now, I've got news for you. I've just heard, literally just heard, that um, the uh, Kosovar um, uh, government, in some form or another, has rejected this. So that, I'm very relieved by that indeed. How much of an influence will the EU foreign ministers have on this decision? Well, they'd have a huge influence if they were to agree to it. And, but the reason why they mustn't is you know, everybody wants peace in the Balkans. Everybody wants the Balkans nations to come to the European Union. Um, but you can't bring them to the European Union in the process of, of abandoning a European principle. And the European principle has always been, after wars over borders for a thousand years, that we will um, keep the borders as they are, get people to live in multi-ethnic communities and multinational communities in the states they're in, and solve the problem by making borders not uh, matter. Um, so you will achieve exactly what they want um, when they're in the European Union and the border is as irrelevant as the border in Alsace-Lorraine between France and Germany. You cannot ask people to join the European Union and help them to do so by abandoning European principles. What's your intelligence about how things are on the ground in those countries at the moment with the different ethnic groups? Well, they're difficult, um, but they always are. I mean, they were difficult for 40 years in Northern Ireland. I marched into Northern Ireland as one of the troops that was to keep the peace in 1969. And here we are in 2018, and it's still difficult to make the matter uh, finally uh, end it and create proper integration. But would it have been better if we hadn't have done that and just let them fight it out? No, of course it wouldn't. And it would have spread 
war on a much wider scale, and that's true of the Balkans too. You have to have the strategic patience to hold the ring and to see these countries transit from countries which are post-conflict to countries with a sustainable peace. And that can't be done simply by allowing nationalist leaders to create nationally pure uh, entities, um, pockets, if you like, over which they have total control, um, and uh, build up the enmity with their next-door neighbors. We have to learn to get on with each other, not um, abandon the idea and move towards sort of mono-ethnic, mono-cultural spaces. We are not prepared to let the Balkans, which we know perfectly well have already launched one war in Europe and was very much part of a second, uh, and then was the worst outbreak of war since the Second World War. We are not prepared to let these nations um, destabilize the whole region and Europe, and we are there as a backstop to ensure that the Dayton Agreement, an international agreement, is, if necessary, enforced. I don't think it will come to that, but the presence of troops on the ground, and now British troops on the ground, is a guarantee that that isn't going to be allowed to happen. Lord Ashdown, Paddy Ashdown talking there, and you mentioned British troops on the ground, 30 in Kosovo at the moment, and around 70 in Bosnia-Herzegovina at the moment, part of uh, NATO forces there. In essence, Christopher Lee, Lord Ashdown is advocating the fact that we must police this area to prevent it going back to what it has been in the last century. Is he right on that? Well, he's certainly right on that, and it, it, you've got to remember the 1948 and the creation of what was then uh, called Yugoslavia, um, and the removal of Yugoslavia from the Warsaw Pact, i.e. Mm. The, in in 54, etc., shows that the confrontations you're talking about, or the possible confrontations, are very, not simply real, they are um, very likely. If you go to, as you know, if you go to former Yugoslavia, and if you go to Serbia, and you go to um, anywhere there, and when they talk about the last war, when we talk about the last war, we're only talking about World War Two. Yeah. When they talk about the last war, they talk about their last personal wars, their border wars. And what uh, Mrs. Margarini uh, has been doing is uh, sort of go along with Serbia. And that's a very Italian thing to do as well. Or for her, it's a very Italian thing to do. Uh, without remembering that uh, Yugoslavia sort of laid it out in '48, um, that changing borders creates the anxieties that produce future conflict. Mm. And it, it and even if you put them back, it's that anxiety is still there generationally. And that is in fact what's happening at the moment. Now thirty British troops in Kosovo at the moment and seventy in Bosnia doesn't sound very much. But it's part of a big organization which says that if you if you pull back that organization, um and then you're in trouble because you let a country go go on to not govern itself but misgovern everything that's around it. Absolutely, and it's that whole region is is suffering from this wanting to redraw and rename. We had the thing recently with North Macedonia and Greece and all of that. It's it's all up in the air in some ways. Stand on the hills and yeah. look around you, and you will see why people say on that hill is a cousin who um, who <clears throat> bled to death. Uh, the whole family history and that's an expression they bled to death they joined the wrong yeah. side and that is that is why you change borders it is let's um, stay with European defence though and move a little closer to our home here in the UK uh, to France and the French president has warned that the US can no longer be relied on for the continent's security Emmanuel Macron was speaking at the Elysee Palace at the opening of the Conference of Ambassadors that's an annual gathering of French diplomats who come back to the mother country from around the world let's listen 
L'Europe ne peut plus remettre. Europe can no longer rely solely on the United States for its security. It is up to us today to take up our responsibilities. Alliances still have their relevance today, but the balances or the mechanisms on which they were built need to be revisited. Now, joining us on the line is Elizabeth Braw, an associate fellow at the Royal United Services Institute. Hello, Elizabeth. Hello. Hello there. Thanks very much for joining us. Um, so this is something we've seen from France before, isn't it? The, the the willingness to move away from the protective umbrella of America. We saw it with de Gaulle 50 or so years ago. But the question is, does Europe need America when it comes to defence? Well, that's uh, the question that people have been asking for years and now it's a particularly good time to to be asking that question because America seems a bit uh, uncertain about uh, that commitment uh, itself and so when Angela Merkel said the same thing at uh, the famous uh, beer tent meeting in in, in, um, southern Germany a few months ago uh, that wasn't such big news but if if the president of France says it it's it's uh, um, rather more important because France is such an important military power and then of course that raises the question now if the US uh, or if we shouldn't uh, rely on the Americans to play such a large role who should play that role and it then um, uh, sort of uh, looks as if uh, France might uh, want to take on that role. Yeah and also even team up a little bit with Russia the sort of you know flashbacks to the pre-first world war alliances going on here is that a sensible yeah. well, <laughs> strategy? what Bismarck would, would have made of it <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly it does, it does stir uh, passions doesn't it somewhat but uh, is, is Macron playing a clever game here is he trying to re-establish France as the preeminent NATO power this side of the Atlantic well I think he is but I it all comes down to cash, does it not? And and so it's it's all uh, well and good to to say that we shouldn't rely on the Americans, but uh, the Americans do spend a lot of money on on uh, European security. We, we are spending more ourselves, but the Americans do spend a lot. And uh, the question then is, who would want to take over that role if we are not to rely on Amer- on on the Americans anymore? And if I could just go back to a few recent figures here, so if we look at the European Deterrence Initiative. Uh, which, um, as you know, was set up to to deter Russia after um, the Ukraine crisis or conflict began. So in 2017, the budget for the EDI was $3.4 billion, and that's on top of the baseline Pentagon budget. Uh, Then this year, it's $4.8 billion, and next year, the budget that is... um, and calculated a $6.5 billion. So that's a lot of money. And I was just looking at, just as a snapshot, um, US Air Force airfield upgrades in Europe this year. And we're talking about a lot of money, 20 million in Romania, 14.4 million in Iceland. In the UK, we have $100 million. Norway, $25 million. That's a lot of money. Would France want to spend that sort of money, I think, is what we have to ask. Or even could France spend that money? (laughs) That's (laughs) That's the question. I mean, I'm, I'm interested, Elizabeth, about this this connect with Russia because we are in a never changing world, and even within NATO, there are issues that affect both France and Russia. Say, and Turkey is one of those issues, unstable but a NATO member. One, of course, that Russia with the Bosporus has massive interest in. Is there some strategic sense in developing that partnership then? I think you could always argue there there is some strategic sense in working closer with Russia simply because it is such a large presence uh, in this part of the world. But one can also say it's it's a very useful way to 
to essentially tell the Americans, well, you know, if, if you're not going to be as closely involved in our continent, there are other options. And I know, of course, other countries have been playing that card very successfully in, for example, turning to the Chinese. Yeah, absolutely. A warning shot across the bowels of America. Thank you very much indeed for joining us, Elizabeth Braw. Now, it's emerged that Britain may have to build a new port to service its military base in Cyprus if there's a no-Brexit deal. Plans, apparently, for the facility at Royal Air Force Aquatiri are already being drawn up as part of preparations to limit the impact of Britain leaving the EU without a trade agreement. Gerald Butt is a former BBC Middle East correspondent and now Middle East editor of Petroleum Economist magazine. Hello, Gerald. Hello to you. Hello there. Now, um, equipment and other goods often travels through the commercial port at Limassol into Cyprus. The, the thinking here is if there's a no-Brexit deal, that wouldn't be able to happen, would it? Well, there would be a lot of complications. They would have to cross borders in order to get from uh, Limassol into the various British bases. So it would, it would be inconvenient and it could be very time-consuming and therefore could be very disruptive to military operations, particularly if there was some kind of... A major incident in the Middle East or further afield where Aquatiri would be needed, vitally needed, um, for backing up uh, whatever forces are involved in that operation in the Middle East or elsewhere. So, yes, it would be complicated. I think the, the obvious thing would be to build a naval port, um, but I think the difficulties involved are very considerable indeed. At the moment, Cyprus, uh, Britain rather, has a, a, an army base. In Cyprus, it has an air base, but it most certainly doesn't have a naval base. So it would be starting right from scratch. And no. I think, you know, one of the questions is where exactly would there be enough room to build it? Yeah, I mean, the last time Britain had a naval base in Cyprus was at Famagusta before um, Cyprus gained independence. And that's the question here, really, isn't it, about about this? Back before 2004, when Cyprus was not in the EU, they were separate countries, Britain, EU member, Cyprus, separate country, not EU. We took goods in through Limassol, there was no problem. The sovereign base areas have always coexisted. Isn't this just a bit of a storm in a teacup, another Brexit blow-up, as it were? Well, I think uh, if indeed there is no deal, then it would make a lot of sense to, to have a port, a military base in Cyprus. My question really is... Um, would it be practically possible? Will there be enough room within the 99 square miles which Britain uh, owns and is British sovereign territory? And secondly, what would the reaction in Cyprus be? Now, Cyprus doesn't have to be consulted because it is British sovereign territory. On the other hand, the bases need to live in harmony with the Cypriots just to make life life easy. And there is an underlying current within the Cypriot, Greek Cypriot community anyway, that is basically against the presence. It feels uncomfortable that there is a lingering British presence, a hangover from the days of colonial power. Yeah, I mean, I've got to read the MOD statement that they've sent us. They say they're making sensible precautions amid reports it's drawing up plans. Uh, it's said to follow fears a no-Brexit deal could see the EU impose tough checks on uh, entering the base, basically. So just get that one in there. Uh, Gerald Butt, thank you very much indeed for joining us today and talking Cyprus. Uh, Christopher, I want to talk Gibraltar with you, though, because similar things could happen there. An awful lot of people live across the border in Spain, work in Gibraltar. We remember the days back until about 1986, I think, when there was no border. There are worries. Yeah, but the majority of Gibraltarians actually work in Spain. Yeah. There are no there are no issues here, and the issues with the naval base in, in Gibraltar is a different size, it has a different purpose, it comes under a different command, um, including its industrial side for, for repairs. It's just not a, a sort of property and food shifter. And so forget Gibraltar in the sense of Cyprus. And, and also Spain needs Gibraltar. 
the economy of that part of Gibraltar would crumble if it wasn't. Well, it's part of, yeah, and it, well, it's it's not just the economy. Uh, in 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 military terms, uh, probably Gibraltar is more important than it was, let's say, twenty or thirty years ago. Um, because with the different emphasis of what's coming through, submarine, mm. submarine services come, and surface ships coming through, that's part of it. But the point is there used to be another command called uh, Iberland, and Iberland had all the ingredients of making a very good contained command system that, in fact, it exists based in Gibraltar uh, with the Spanish cooperation. And so all the noises when they get upset about things, uh, they don't go on for very long and they're not very articulate. It's a good drum to bang. It plays out very well with certain political spheres in Spain, but ultimately they need Gibraltar as much as we do. And if it quacks like a duck, it is one. (laughs) I like duck. You're getting me hungry there, Christopher. Anyway, let's move on now to another country I enjoy, and they have lovely roast goose in winter with red cabbage. We're not a cooking programme, we are sit-rep. But the story of British forces' long presence in Germany's most densely populated region is to be the subject of an exhibition. It will open in May next year in Dusseldorf, and will be on display in the State Parliament of North Rhine-Westphalia. Rob Olver's been speaking to the curator and historian, Dr. Dr. Bettina Blum, who's helping, or looking for help rather, from people who have lived or served in Germany's long-standing British military community. The idea of the exhibition is to reflect Anglo-German history over the period of over 70 years. All in all, it was a positive experience, but not every aspect is positive. There was requisitioning of private houses in the beginning, which caused severe social tension. There were fights in bars. And of course, we will cover very different aspects of living together, because living together, it always causes problems. But um, there are many positive aspects like Anglo-German marriages. The exhibition will be shown in the State Parliament in Düsseldorf in May next year. It's a special place as the British military government founded the state North Rhine-Westphalia. I think it's really important to look back at these 70 years as it's 70 years of Anglo-German history. Hundreds of thousands of soldiers and family members came to Germany. The British made big changes to the country when they came and immediately Germans and Britons started to mix, to exchange thoughts and views. There were Anglo-German marriages and friendships and lots of things going on from the beginning on. And we are not only looking on the army but also on the air force and also on the navy. So we try to have a view on all parts of the British forces. Presumably you are looking for help in putting this exhibition together. I'm asking British and German people for help. It is an Anglo-German history and so it's important to have both perspectives on on the history of North Rhine-Westphalia. And it's important to gather the experiences of older people who are able to remember the occupation period and young people who are leaving now or who just met. We're looking for the experiences of of many different people, of soldiers and officers, of family members, of children, of teachers, nurses, chaplains. Our focus is daily life in the barracks and in the married quarters, but also Anglo-German experiences. So anything about sports, sports events, about theatre groups, choirs, Anglo-German marriages, of course. If anyone would like to share only a story or if someone has photos, Of course, we are interested in in photos and in any kind of memorabilia, whether it comes from the barracks or from daily life. If we don't 
gather the experiences now they they will be lost in a few years and so it's it's important to do it really now there we go that was a nice piece from rob olver if you've got any memories get in touch with us at bfbs sitrep is the way to do that on twitter finally um we saw the sad death of uh, senator john mccain in the last uh, week or so and there was a furore over the flags flying in washington half past then not then again but christopher Lee, you've got news here emanating from brussels uh senator mccain was a, an american hero on the grand scale a very honorable man um, shot down in the Vietnam War, refused to be repatriated said because other of his colleagues should have been sent before him, became sen- senator for Arizona and took on uh, Donald Trump in a very big way. Mm. What is happening? He's a hero, a great hero in America. Anders Fogh Rasmussen, um, uh, Lord Robertson, and Javi uh, uh, Solana, uh, the uh, three of the former NATO Secretary Generals, They are proposing that John McCain, the John McCain building, should be the title of the new NATO headquarters in Brussels, which was opened about uh, uh, two months ago. And they're getting slow uh, support. What is interesting is whether they get support from America because uh, the president could not stand him. But the rest of NATO stands him very much. Yes, they, uh, that's going to be an interesting one. Let's watch this space and see where that develops. Christopher Lee, thank you as ever for joining us uh, as our defence analyst on BFBS SITREP. Um, we'll be back next week. Kate Jabot is back in the hot seat. Twitter us if you like, at BFBS SITREP. And while you're online, you can sign up for our podcast. Just search for SITREP wherever you are and download your podcast. From me, Tim Cooper, and the rest of the team, thank you so much indeed for listening. Stay with us through the week and join us next time if you can. Till then, bye-bye. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Britain's available cyber centre.